you would turn with me or listen on now as I read uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17 is well known for Paul's stay in Athens, but we won't quite get there. Acts chapter uh, 17, verses 1 through 15, hear God's word. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, uh, Amphipolis, Amphipolis, excuse me, that was not easy to say, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious took some of the evil men uh, from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and we ask you that it might be opened up to us with a measure of power through your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, Well, as we go on uh, with their travels. On uh, their second missionary journey, these company uh, of men, Paul, Silas, and uh, Timothy, remember they left, uh, they left Luke and Philippi. The traveling party comes next to Thessalonica and later Berea. And after that, Paul famously stops uh, at Athens, but we will leave that for another sermon. One of the things that we notice in uh, Acts is uh, Luke's concern to highlight certain features at each particular stop. Uh, Often these features are repeated. Uh, We could say each section or each pericope uh, then has its own emphasis in Luke's mind. And it's clear in this pericope 
uh, verses 1 through 15. I think when we come to Athens, we could treat that as a separate section with a separate emphasis. But here, there is a united emphasis in these two places, Thessalonica and Berea. The emphasis is upon the importance of the scriptures. Whereas uh, in the prior section in Philippi, uh, it was quite clearly on the emphasis of conversion. uh, And that seems to be one of Luke's favorite themes. It's one of mine. It's one of yours, I'm sure. But this is another favorite of Christians, the importance of the scriptures. Let me try to put it in terms of a principle. What we find in both places is that one's relation to the scriptures is what determines his place in the kingdom of God. Now, I place that or I said that in a very uh, striking and dogmatic form, and yet I'm willing to stand by that. And I, I think that really is the emphasis here of the text. One's relation to the scriptures is what determines his place in the kingdom of God. It isn't the only thing, but it is essential. And that is why in preaching, the apostles always placed the claims of scripture front and center before their hearers. And it was their response to those claims that determined uh, the place of their hearers in the kingdom of God. And we see the varied responses there were, uh, really both extremes, either men believed or they were excited uh, by feelings of anger and animosity. And that's what we'll see in both these places. We always see that, and I hope to reflect upon that. Well, we can really divide this sermon under two headings, the two places we find uh, Paul and his companions. First at Thessalonica, verses 1 through 10a. And the first thing we see, there, there really are uh, no surprises here. The first thing we see is that Paul visits the synagogue. We remember he didn't do that in Philippi, but even there uh, he visited a group of, uh, of those who worshipped the God of Israel. It was like a prayer meeting or a Bible study, but it, it was the same procedure. His concern was to find out uh, those who were worshipping the God of Israel, and he wished to tell them, of Jesus. That was his, his custom, Luke says, as was his custom. Now, we should note something here, and it's helpful to see this in light of something that Luke said earlier, because it is apt to give us a false impression, and that impression is dispelled when we keep reading in Acts. We see in Acts chapter uh, 13, in Antioch, the apostles say it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, that is to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, it would be possible to read that and to think from that moment on, Paul's uh, missionary labors were exclusively taken up with, uh, with the Gentiles. And in one sense, you could say that was true because he was evangelizing Gentile cities. But he, his concern for the Jews remained uh, a very serious concern of his. You remember, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but his way of expressing it in Romans chapter 11 is very helpful. He, pre- he preached to the Gentiles, uh, but in doing so, part of what he was seeking to achieve as scripture had prophesied that the Jews would be provoked to jealousy. And so Paul was someone who remained interested in the Jews. We see that all the way to the end of Acts. In fact, his final interaction in Acts is an interaction with the Jewish people in Rome. Obviously, as I've been saying, we find this concern in Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Romans chapters 9 through 11. There's two things we can observe here about Paul's uh, missionary policy with respect to the Jews. The one is that the synagogue 
wherever he went became a natural center of evangelism, especially because, remember, the scriptures are the focus of this sermon, and the scriptures were always the focus of Paul's sermons, especially as the scriptures were read there every Sabbath. And so that became to him a natural opportunity for evangelism and for preaching. You remember in the synagogues, the scriptures were read. They were also preached. And as Paul uh, visited the synagogue, uh, they were interested in his exposition of the scriptures. So it was a very uh, natural opportunity and obvious place for him to engage in scriptural evangelism. That's the first point. The second is that we see. Uh, that the Jews repeatedly, for the most part, reject this message. And so even though Paul uh, did evangelism there, and Paul was one who was concerned for the Jews, he repeatedly, well, I guess I could say his experience in Antioch was repeated nearly everywhere he went, so that what he said there to the Jews, he kept saying in other places, all the way to the end of, the, of Acts. Uh, you, you reject, uh, the, the message has come to you and you reject it. In fact, This is what we read at the very end of Acts. It's interesting to notice uh, Paul's relationship to the Jews, as I as I keep saying, is the focus straight to the end. And it's actually the final note of Acts. This is what Paul says to the Jews in Rome, beginning uh, in in verse 23. So they had appointed uh, him a day when many came to his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and prophets, in other words, from the scriptures, from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. There you go again, the mixed reaction. So so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul and said, uh, had said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will not hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will, not, uh, you will see and not perceive. For their, the, the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. You remember Jesus quotes that when he gives the parable of the sower. Luke goes on, or in quoting Paul, therefore, let it be known to you that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. So there's the pattern that is repeated nearly everywhere he goes. Some Jews believed the majority did not. And Paul had stern words to say to them, only he was conscious of the fact, as he later elaborates in Romans, that this was the result of God's judicial blinding of the Jews. Which became evident when they did not believe the gospel of their own scriptures. Well, let us see what they did those three Sabbaths that they were in that synagogue. First, we read that they reasoned with them from the scriptures. No surprise there. Already we see the centrality of the scriptures. Verse 2, what did they say? They were explaining and demonstrating, verse 3, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Verses 2 and 3, they were preaching the scriptures. And as they preached the scriptures, I have a series of observations I, I wish to make. The first is, we discover once again, and no surprise, once again, the apostolic kerygma focused on the central facts of the gospel. The gospel being, uh, just think, the four gospels, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the teachings of Jesus Christ. The facts 
which concern Jesus. The facts which concern us as sinners who need salvation from him. That's what they preached. Now, now you realize that this was something, uh, as in the days of Jesus, so in the days of Paul, that was a scandal to the Jews. But Paul was saying this is, uh, that the Christ should suffer in particular, and that through a crucified Savior, one who was cursed and, and hung upon a tree, was the Savior of men and of the Jews. That was a scandal. That was a rock of offense. And yet they preached it. They said, here's the central thing that you need to believe. It's the thing you need to know. It's the thing the scriptures have been predicting. Haven't you read them? And is this not a hope which you have cherished in your heart, having read them? And so uh, let us see that what these men preached were the facts concerning Jesus, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, it was a testimony about him. This Jesus is the Christ. It was a testimony about him based upon the facts of history, which they had observed for themselves. Well, I, I, I suppose I could say they became aware of and certainly Paul had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. But not only were these uh, factual or historical facts, but they were scriptural. The scripture predicted the facts. And the facts, when they happened, confirmed and fulfilled the scriptures, leaving an unmistakable impression. Here were facts to be believed. What facts? The facts of history recorded in the Gospels, preached by the apostles, preached in Christian pulpits to this, to this day, believed by Christians to this day. But these were also the same facts uh, that Paul was saying repeatedly and that Jesus had said in his own day that you would find prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. The focus of scripture ever since Adam fell in the garden was the need of man for salvation. And until that salvation had come, the outlook of the Old Testament was one of prediction and hope of the coming Messiah. And it was always going to come in this way. Not only through the conquest of the Messiah, but also through the sufferings of the Messiah. For in crushing the head of the serpent, he would bruise his heel. This is something God had been clear about all along. And we see Jesus constantly telling his own disciples, and even they, uh, even they, especially Peter, protesting that the Christ must be delivered into the hands of men. And he must suffer and he must die. And yes, he must also rise again. In order for what to happen? In order for man to be saved. But now the apostles were saying the thing that the prophets had predicted, the thing that God said throughout the scriptures was going to happen, the thing that Jesus said was necessary in order for man to be saved now had happened. The Christ had suffered. The Christ had died. The Christ has been raised from the dead. And this kind of preaching, you see, was calculated to excite the Jewish mind. They focused upon the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. They didn't skirt around it, but they focused upon it. They zeroed in on it to excite the Jewish mind in one of two directions, either to devotion and faith in their Messiah or agitation and animosity and don't think that they didn't know by now that one of these two things was bound to happen. You remember Paul uh, as Saul had experienced both things in his own heart. Formerly one who hated the Messiah now one who was utterly devoted to him. 
And so we see nothing less here. But let us also see that in presenting the scriptures to these Jews and God-fearing Greeks, they did more than merely say these things. They preached them. They did so in a manner that aimed at conversion, or to use the language here which is used repeatedly, and we found it again in Acts 28, the language of persuasion. They sought to persuade their hearers. Or, to use another expression, they reasoned from the scriptures. They aimed, in a reasoned manner, to persuade their minds. They aimed to fill their minds with arguments that could not be refuted, both, uh, as I've said, from history and from the scriptures. Of course, we realize that more than uh, a mere intellectual reason was involved in what both they said and what they sought from their hearers. We see earlier, uh, and certainly we see here, but, but thinking of what we saw in Acts chapter 2, how men were cut to the heart by what they heard. As their, as their minds were filled with the arguments of these preachers, they were cut to the heart. And so there is, uh, in what these men aimed at, they're, they're, they, they, they aimed at the heart. They aimed at the emotions, or as, uh, as Jonathan Edwards would say, and I would say, and I, <laughs> I hope this becomes a more normal way of speaking, they aimed at the affections, the religious affections. They sought to excite them, to use the language of Jesus. One cannot find the pearl of great uh, price and not rejoice. You see, that's the affections. That's the heart which is warmed and full of joy. But one of the things that we learn here, they were aiming at the heart, but the primary thing was the mind, the reason. And they realized, uh, if we are to engage in a bit of anthropology here, that the only way truly to to reach the mind, or excuse me, the heart, and to excite the heart is through the mind. It is to the mind and to the reason that an appeal to the facts of history about Jesus supported by the authority of the Holy Scriptures is made. And that's why I think Luke is so careful to describe how the appeal was made and how the appeal was received. It was based upon the facts themselves, also in terms of the scriptures. But it was not, you see, an, an emotional appeal. It was a reasoned one. And so we are not surprised to see that he tells us some of them were persuaded. That, uh, that's on the, on the side of the response, verse, uh, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, even as these men, verse 2, reasoned from them and uh, were seeking to persuade them from the scriptures. For that is what they aimed at. And in the case of many, Luke tells us a great multitude, that is what they achieved by their preaching. But we should also notice the other side. It wasn't just a great multitude were persuaded and believed, but there was, uh, there was the side of unbelief. This kind of preaching, which is based upon the scriptures, does not allow for neutrality. It doesn't allow a man to stay or remain undecided. And uh, so I would say, in light of what we see here, 
And in light of the history of the church, it is always a good sign when by the preaching you not only make friends but also enemies. That is a good sign that what is being preached is not the word of man but the word of God. And as it pla- the word of God places its claims upon men, it does not allow for neutrality. And that is what we find the apostles always did. They always preached the word of God. So as some were persuaded, indeed a great many, on the other hand, uh, by their preaching, they excited the envy and the ire of the Jews. They were envious because, well, they were not happy that these preachers were, in essence, creating a stir and new converts to this new teaching. And so they stirred up trouble by false accusations, plausible enough to sound true. The, the accusations were twofold, uh, as was famously said in the King James and is reflected here in, uh, in the new King James. They were turning the world upside down. In other words, the effect of the kingdom of God coming into the world, and we see this in the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus and also in, in its, the effects of his ministry. Christianity, if I could put it this way, always causes trouble. It always stirs up a bit of trouble, at least. It's a disruptive thing. That's the way the kingdom of God is. It, it, it comes into the lives of men. It comes into families. It comes into uh, nations. And it, it's disruptive. It's disruptive uh, both in, 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 in the sense that it is uh, a sort of division. And so it, it creates a kind of uh, a difficulty in the lives of men. Suddenly they must make decisions. Who, who, whom will we follow? But also in the sense of creating new and exciting possibilities in the lives of men. What I have known thus far uh, it, it cannot compare to what I might know. If only I should begin to follow Jesus. And yet, uh, the excitement of the possibility of new things, thinking of what God might do in my life and in the lives of others, is the bane of the existence of the traditional uh, the traditionalists like these Jews. Always holding on to the past, never open to what God might do in bringing the kingdom of God. They were turning the world upside down. They were troublemakers. That's the first thing. And in a sense, you could say they were right. But the second accusation was that there was another king, Jesus. Now, you see, that was true in one sense. But this claim as it was made, was not calculated. I mean, as it was made by the apostles. The claim that Jesus is king, it was not calculated in their preaching to stir up revolution. That isn't what they aimed at, even if that's what they were accused of. It was calculated instead to stir up devotion to Jesus. Plain and simple. And we just, we just sung about that, didn't we? The claims of the gospel are the claims of discipleship. Follow me, Jesus says. But the world will not accept this kind of exclusive devotion. And that really is the trouble. The world will tolerate, of course, a lazy kind of religion. It always does and it always will. And that's what you find in most churches today. And, of course, they cause very little trouble to the world There's so little true devotion to Jesus. There's so little zeal for him. But you see, a religion of the scriptural kind that we find preached by the apostles, 
A religion that calls men to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord, as the King, with unmatched devotion, even at the expense of human ties and allegiances, which means, yes, it may cost you your family, and yes, it may even cost you your nation. No, the world won't tolerate that. But the real thing to see is how the world, how willing the world is to lie about us. Do you see the world always persecutes Christians based on a lie? We thought they would persecute us based on the truth, but that never was the case. It wasn't true in the life of Jesus. It wasn't true in the life of the apostles, and it won't be true in your own life, in your own day, if ever you should be persecuted. Mark my words. When they begin to persecute Christians in America, if ever they do, it won't be for the gospel as we preach it. It will be based upon some distortion of what we say that upsets the public morality of the day. In their day, it was devotion to Caesar as king or even Caesar as Lord. You can understand how Jesus as Lord was upsetting to the public morality of the day. In our own day, it will look very different, but it will be based upon a lie. One of the questions that I'm most interested to answer from the scriptures, from history, yes, but especially from the scriptures, is what should we do if this happens? Let's suppose the crowds are stirred up against us and against me for something that we said, something that was distasteful to to the public ethos and the public morality. What should we do if that happens? Well, I notice again what Paul did, and this isn't the first time he did it, with the help of his new friends in Thessalonica. First, we find that he was hid so that they could not find him. And then he fled to another town. Now, to me, this used to be an open question, whether fleeing or hiding from persecution was unmanly and beneath the dignity of a Christian. I think it's fair to say that's a fair question. But uh, such a question no longer worries me or troubles me. We have an answer in the scriptures. Fleeing from persecution is one of the many options open to the Christian. It isn't the only one, but it is certainly one. And many of you are familiar with the story of how Calvin ended up in Geneva. It was as he fled persecution in France. And we thank God uh, that he did. We thank God that he ended up in Geneva. Well, uh, one of the things uh, that we might notice I had hoped to read a portion from F.F. Bruce. I I think I'll just save that. But you find that Paul is gone. He's left the Thessalonians. If you keep that in mind uh, and and go back and reread what I read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, you'll find uh, Paul reflecting upon his not only his experience there and he's reflecting upon how the word of God came to them and how they received it as the very word of God. Uh, But also we find Paul's earnest desire to come back to them, only he was hindered. And so there was only so much he could do. But we come next to his stay in Berea, uh, verse 10b through verse 15. And again, we see how he visits the synagogue. And again, we see how the preaching, the attitude about and the reception of the word of God was the main thing in Berea as it was in Thessalonica. And again, we see a mixed reception for that is what the word of God always does. It brings division. Some believe some did not, though it is clear that good as uh, the reception was by many in Thessalonica. It was even better here. Luke tells us 
as much. So positive was its reception that Luke seems to marvel at it and put these Bereans forth as an example to be imitated. And so they have been ever since. The desire of every Christian should be to be a good Berean. If you don't know what that means, I hope you will in a moment. And so then with regard to the Bereans, as the scriptures were preached to them, we find their attitude towards the scriptures as a model to be emulated. We read first that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. That's the kind of praise Luke is giving. That is, they were less given to prejudice. They were open to being persuaded so long as it was from the Bible. In other words, they were not, uh, they were not given to the hostility and the unwillingness and, uh, to be persuaded in the unbelief of the Jews in so many other places. They were open to scriptural arguments. You don't need to think about the Jews to see this, the Jews in the first century. So often uh, you will meet Christians who are not open to persuasion. Their mind is made up. They will not even listen to the Bible itself. Their system of theology is complete. It's finished. That's not what a Berean is. A Berean is someone we read next who received the word with all readiness. There was an eagerness about them. They earnestly desired to hear the scriptures and to hear the scriptures preached. Here was good soil, apt to produce good fruit. So they also searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They didn't listen to the sermon one Sabbath and wait for the next. But they filled their days with the study of scriptures. And as they did so, they didn't immediately take the word of these preachers as gospel, if I could put it that way. They were eager to hear the arguments. They were ready to be persuaded. And so their mind was open to the arguments of the Bible. But their mind was not settled before examining the claims themselves against the touchstone of the word of God. And so their, real, their rule was, let every controversy in religion be settled by the claims and teachings of scripture. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's the teaching of our own confession. Let me read to you what it says. It says the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And then section 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and, uh, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. The final court of appeal is the Bible. That's what the Bereans believed. And that's what a Berean is to this day. This is what F.F. Bruce says. With admirable freedom from prejudice, they brought the missionaries' claims to the touchstone of holy writ. Or as Matthew Henry says, those are truly noble and likely to be more and more so who make the scriptures their rule and consult them accordingly. May all the hearers of the gospel become like those of Berea, receiving the word with readiness of mind and searching the scriptures daily, whether the things preached to them are so. And that's what it uh, has always meant to this day, to be a Berean. To be a Berean indicates an openness, a desire to be taught from the scriptures, especially from qualified and spirit filled preachers. But even then, even if a man is full of the spirit, 
what he says must always be examined in, in light of the word. And happy is the preacher whose congregation is filled with such people. Matthew Henry also says, speaking of uh, the attitude of the preacher, that is of Paul, and hopefully of myself, the doctrine of Christ does not fear inquiry. The man isn't afraid to be asked questions from the Bible, to have his claims examined in light of the Bible. The preacher worth his salt is not afraid for the people to ask a question. To examine what he says in light of the teaching of scripture. Indeed, he welcomes such things. And it's often the case that the people help the preacher in this way. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I sought to, uh, to impart a gift to you, but also to receive a gift myself. And do you realize that often, I'm not saying, I'm not saying pick, uh, pick the preacher and the sermon apart. But very often when you come to the preacher, uh, you help him in what you have to say. And, and I dare say you even teach him. And open the scriptures up to him in light of the sermon that he just preached. And so really we're all together under the authority of the scriptures. But the last thing we see is that many of them believed. And that's really, uh, I'm glad that Luke says that because that's a fitting summary here. He didn't say it in Thessalonica. He almost didn't say it here except he wraps it up by saying this is the thing. Not just they were persuaded. It wasn't just their mind said, you know, I agree with the arguments, but they believed And remember, as we saw in prior sermons in Romans, belief is a heart thing. What was said entered their minds, but it seeped into their hearts. And they believed from the heart. The testimony of these preachers was indeed confirmed in the scriptures upon examination. And so we see the truth confirmed from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. A hearing of the word of God, the Bereans teach us, that is mixed with diligent study of the word of God. Not only mixed, but undergirded. It is a knowledgeable hearing. It is a hearing which is based upon an antecedent knowledge of the scriptures and a continuing study of them. Such is fertile ground for believing The kind of faith which faithful preaching excites in the hearts of believers. As the word of God is preached to us, is it undergirded, beloved, with a study of the scriptures? One of the things that Thomas Watson says in a body of divinity is one of the reasons preaching does less good on Sunday is because the catechism isn't taught at home. Well, let me amplify that a bit and say the preaching would do more good if the Bibles were read more at home. And the greater our knowledge of the scriptures, the more we will benefit from the preaching as the Bereans did. Yet happy as the scene was, it was not to last for Jews, we read, came from Thessalonica and stirred up more trouble. And so once again, Paul flees to another town, this time Athens, where we will leave him for now. We read there, he waited for Timothy and Silas to rejoin him. But as I say, we will leave him for there, uh, there for now and return uh, to find him there at a later time. Here is my closing exhortation to you. In line with the text, what is your attitude towards the scriptures? What is your attitude towards the Bible? There are few questions which are more crucial than this. What do you think? Of the Bible. Increasingly, uh, I find, I, I think I've always found this to be the case. People's greatest objection to Christianity concerns the Bible itself. They're not sure what to make of it. Well, what do you make of the scriptures? 
do you remember what the first membership question is? Do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? There, the Christian is confessing his belief that the Bible is the word of God and that it contains the one and only way that a sinner can be saved. That's the essence, you see, of a Christian position, of the Christian position. It's the, it's the essence of what it is to have faith. Why? Well, because hearing comes, or faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does a man come to have faith in Jesus Christ? It's by hearing the scriptures, both read and preached. And no man can be a Christian until he is prepared to accept the teaching of the Bible. We learn that in these two places, just as we've been learning it all along. And so I ask you, what do you think of it? What do you make of the Bible? Do you see its importance as the final court of appeal? Do you accept its authority as the very word of God? And do you understand its message? Do you know what the Bible is about? Do you understand what it teaches? Its message, especially concerning salvation, that which... The apostles pinpointed in their preaching of the scriptures. Do you see its true value as that which reveals to us the Savior? And do you realize that it is from the scriptures that we come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? And in no other place can we hope to know and find him. And who is the Christ of scripture? He's Jesus. This Jesus whom I preach to you. Is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. He whom we read of in the gospels. He who was preached by the apostles. The great aim of the scriptures. Is to convince us of this. That Jesus is the Christ. And in his name alone. Is salvation. And I say if the scriptures won't persuade you of this. Then nothing will. And so have the scriptures persuaded you of this one thing, that Jesus is the Christ. Many have and many will claim that something greater is needed if they are to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But on the authority of Jesus Christ and on the authority of these very scriptures, I say. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. If they won't listen to the Bible, they won't listen to anyone. If the scriptures won't persuade you, nothing will. But it is the man who is open and ready to hear the teaching of the scriptures that can and will be saved. The man who, like uh, the, uh, the Thessalonians, for this reason... We also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectually works in you who believe. That was the testimony of these two places. They came to see the word of God as it really is the word of God and not the word of men. And because it was so. They began to experience its power, its powerful salvation, even as others there and in every every place ever since were aroused to animosity and hatred. Well, I close by uh, quoting, in essence, uh, what Thomas Watson says, beloved, let us be Bible men. Let us be scriptural Christians and we will do well always. Amen.
And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 171.